Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Alex Newhouse from the Accelerationism research consortium where he is the technical director thanks for joining us alex yeah thanks for having me happy to be here i guess just to begin with maybe an explainer of what is accelerationism yeah absolutely so accelerationism as a term means a whole bunch of different things but the way that we define it at arc at the consortium is specifically that it's the set of strategies and tactics that are used by extremists mostly neo-fascists but some other types to basically attempt to put pressure on what they see as like latent social divisions with the ultimate goal of creating like what I call positive feedback loops of social conflict. So the entire idea is that you can use a very small number of people theoretically to cause very large scale social conflict, mass destruction, mass chaos, those sorts of things. And the ultimate sort of purpose of all of this is eventually they hope to actually cause the full scale collapse of, of liberal society as we know it. So everything is geared towards creating these feedback loops that are designed to essentially create some sort of apocalyptic end end world scenario. Now, you formed a research consortium. Uh, What was lacking in the the existing research that you needed a whole consortium? Yeah, I think it's it was an it was a sort of variety of different reasons why we ended up creating a consortium about this. But the main one is that we felt like there was this gap in the current extremism discourse, uh, extremism research discourse, specifically around the idea of militant accelerationism, we felt like because there wasn't anyone really working together focused on accelerationism as a unique concept, as a sort of specific manifestation of right-wing terrorism, we were missing a bunch of the sort of connective tissue that would explain why we're seeing uh, a sort of like simultaneous upsurge, let's say, in uh, what, you know, what would appear to be lone actor mass shootings alongside harassment campaigns alongside flyering campaigns from neo-fascist and neo-nazi groups all of these things we feel like are connected in some to some degree by accelerationism and we felt like there wasn't enough focus and attention being paid to that to those intersection points alex is uh, accelerationism a new thing and if not where do you trace its origins we actually uh tend to think that accelerationism in its contemporary form like this this idea that you can use a small number of people to basically you know be force multipliers for existing social conflict um, we trace that back to essentially the italian years of lead in the 1960s and 1970s so it's not entirely new a lot of the tactics that we see today from groups like adam Offen division and individuals like britain tarrant were were we feel like innovated during that sort of post-World War II neo-fascist time. But 
one of the one of the things that is new is this self-identification by neo-Nazis and neo-fascists as accelerationists. The use of the term by the extremists themselves probably goes back only a handful of years. And and the the identification of the tactics as sort of like this intentional thing that was being focused on by extremists goes back maybe 10, 15 years before that. But we can trace we can trace it back even uh, pretty far back into the 20th century for sure. Alex, last week we discussed ecofascism on the show. There have been a number of uh, accelerationist manifestos that have cited ecofascism as uh, you know, the one of the motives for carrying out atrocities. At the same time, I recently had the uh, the very fun experience of reading some other <laughs> accelerationist manifestos from the Terragram Collective, where ecofascism seems to be less of a concrete idea and more maybe just a idealized idea of what they would like the world to look like after they uh, take over, but uh, le- le- they're less concerned about climate change itself. Where does ecofascism fit into the accelerationist perspective? Yeah, I, I personally tend to think that ecofascism today, it's definitely a threat, it's definitely a risk, but ultimately when we see it popping up and let's say like the green brigades, the the cell of, of the base, or when you see someone on Telegram using uh, like posting a picture of Ted Kaczynski or whatever it might be and saying that they're an eco-fascist. Generally, I feel like that's mostly just for the aesthetic reasons. It's like a propagandis- propagandization strategy for them. I I generally haven't seen too many like true believers in the whole in the the actual rhetoric that ecofascism ostensibly professes there's not a lot of people who i i would view as like diehard believers in the teachings of penti lincola and those those types of philosophers but the aesthetics of it like the the back to the the earth blood and soil pine tree gang type of aesthetics are appealing to a lot of people which is why i think we do see it popping up uh, again and again in these types of communities i also do think that there are parts of like the teachings of Ted Kaczynski and, and Linkola that are appealing and do tend to attract themselves to people of the militant accelerationist mindset already. So things like this idea that that liberal modern society has completely betrayed the world and it's in a sort of natural order, those types of things are sticky. Those ideas are sticky and they will they will show up again and again. So ultimately I think it like it's more of like a a the adoption of eco-fascism by accelerationists is more of like a an aesthetic thing and oftentimes a, an adoption of convenience rather than any sort of true belief. You're engaged in research into accelerationism, but you've also looked a lot at online activities. And in terms of the recent history of accelerationism, what was the role of a website like Iron March? I generally say that Iron March can be considered kind of like the primordial soup of modern day accelerationism. I've also called it like the town square. It's I, I, at this point, I really don't think you can over overstate the role that Iron March played in the development of contemporary far right accelerationist terrorism. It's interesting though, because like there, there are a number of crimes that have been attributed back to Iron March users specifically, but in terms of like the big mass casualty terrorist attacks, as far as I know, we still haven't yet really identified many successful attacks back to Iron March users. There were a couple foiled attacks, like the Halifax uh, Mall mass shooting plot was was hatched by an Iron March user. But in general, like Britain Tarrant, the El Paso shooter, the Poe Synagogue shooter, all of these types come from different communities. All that being said, Iron March was this place where the founder intentionally created it to be transnational. He intentionally created it around the philosophy of people like Julius Evola, 
And the result of it was these users who were coming together and finding common ground in a way that really hasn't happened many other times in the history of the far right. There were people coming from all across the right wing spectrum from people who call themselves basically like just white nationalists all the way to full scale, you know, genocidal esoteric Hitlerist types. And, and ultimately, though, even the people on the sort of moderate end of the spectrum ended up sticking with Iron March in large part and engaged with those people on the further, more extreme ends. And the result was this pretty striking uh, community building that that occurred where you were able to or where where extremists were able to set up groups like Adamoff and Division and even National Action came out of Iron March. And it wasn't just the the small core of people setting up the group that were involved in creating the group. It was this whole community, this this um, group of people that a lot of people refer to as like their second family, who all came together to help contribute to these to these projects of creating these different types of of terrorist group, this, these different types of propaganda, those sorts of things. And that model, this model of like you have three people setting up Animoff and Division, but then you have a hundred people contributing to the creation of the creation of its propaganda, that model is incredibly important for understanding why we see accelerationist activity evolving the way it has over the past 10 years. We have seen more and more that like the named entity, the named group like Adamoff and Division or Forward Creek Division, all these different neo-fascist groups, those named entities have reduced in importance. And really what people are attributing themselves to, what they're identifying with is this overarching network, this community of people that is unnamed, but nonetheless is pretty strongly connected with one another. And, and a lot of that I attribute back to the influence of, of the founder of Iron March, Alexander Slavros, and uh, the founder of National Action, Benjamin Raymond, and their efforts to, to seed this type of internet community. So it's, it, it's pretty vital in my opinion. What does that phenomenon mean for the you know, the practice of prescribing these groups. Uh, recently in Australia, I think Schoenenkrieg Division was prescribed, despite I don't think there were any members in Australia. What happens when the groups aren't important? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the biggest issues facing the current prescription apparatus across the Five Eyes countries and across the Western world in general. It, it, in, a lar- in large part, it's just you know, you're playing whack-a-mole and oftentimes by the time, you know, Australia gets around to prescribing Sonic Creek division, it's basically long gone and it's in that form, in the Sonic Creek form. Those people have either been arrested or moved on to other things. So what we've tried to talk with governments about is this idea of like, you know, is there a way using existing laws to either use existing prescriptions, so prescribe Sonic Creek Division, to then go after people who are networked with them? So people like, you know, Benjamin Raymond and the, and the National Action types who helped Sonic Creek Division or the Iron March users who helped Sonic Creek Division? Or can we start thinking about prescribing the network as a whole, despite the fact that it's not named and that it doesn't have a command and construct? and uh, control structure. I personally hope that we can get to that point, that we can actually start mapping these relationships between people that go far beyond any one named entity and actually potentially prescribe that entire network. But I think it's going to be an uh, in, in uphill battle in the current sort of legal status. So we've had some success, for example, with tech companies and saying, hey, like, 
uh, the United Kingdom prescribed national action, Canada prescribed Adamoff and division. Here are X, Y, and Z group, X, Y, and Z individual who are connected to them strongly enough that we can use the prescription, the existing prescription to go after them, even if they personally don't consider themselves a, a quote unquote member of Adamoff and division, for instance. Uh, Alex, you mentioned esoteric Hitlerism before. Could you speak about the influence of occultism on these groups and uh, how it manifests itself? No pun intended. Yeah, I think there's there's a very, very strong influence of occultism and esotericism at the sort of higher ideologue level of of uh, accelerationist communities. We know, for instance, that they're, they're, the uh, founders of Sodden Creek Division were obsessed with occultism, probably were followers of Order of Nine Angles. Temple of Blood, the Order of Nine Angles, Nexion pretty infamously took over Adamoff and Division for a period of time. They also probably took over Foria Creek Division, uh, depending on who you ask. So there is this pretty significant in, uh, influence of occultism on on these spaces. What's what's interesting is that the sort of uh, dividing line between the like normie neo-fascists and the occultist neo-fascists is very very blurry, and you'll see a lot of this the the more. Uh, conventional types of neo-fascists start to engage with occultist literature, even while they're still saying, hey, I hate the Satanists. I I don't want anything to do with Order of Nine Angles at all. But they'll start to read Iron Gates. They'll start to read other types of like extreme occultist literature because they view it as like the the next step in their process of radicalization. They view it the they view it as like the the edgy thing to do. The coolest thing to do is to read the most extreme literature, even if they profess that they don't believe in it. And then ultimately once you read that, Oftentimes, the the person will be more primed to um, getting into the occultist side of it a little more. In terms of its actual like operational influence, I think what we see is that the ideologues who are most obsessed with following these types of occultist practices are also the ones most willing to break out of the conventional frameworks of neo-fascism and white supremacy and try to engage with potentially other uh, often unconventional types of allies. It's why we have suspicions about some various other non-neo-fascist movements having some connection with militant accelerationism. We think that there's some occultists at the higher levels who are trying to make alliances of convenience. Uh, and then it's also why we see sometimes militant accelerationist groups trying to, for example, collaborate with Al-Qaeda and ISIS. That That's sort of like a direct line from the the esoteric teachings of Julius Evola and the type, those types of traditionalist uh, philosophers. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Alex Newhouse about accelerationism. Alex, in terms of ideology, I guess I, when I think of a site like Iron March, it was a, a moment of consolidation on the far right, but there's emerged many alternative tech platforms like Gab and Parler and Truth Social and so on. How do those sites compare and how do they treat doctrines like accelerationism? It's hard to make a statement as definitive as the ones that I made about Iron March about the newer platforms just by virtue of there being so many more of them that have a presence uh, on them uh, from accelerationists. Uh, and to some extent, like I've tracked accelerationists from Discord to Roblox to like various other gaming platforms um, over onto the alt tech platforms like Gab and those. I, I generally think that we can break them up a little bit, though. So, for example, Telegram is still the place where accelerationists propagandize the most effectively. Telegram's content moderation policies are just the loosest and they tend to have the most 
friendly uh, welcome from the administrators there and the networked the, the the sort of like social network features on telegram are conducive to the types of organization and propagandization that accelerationists like to do telegram is in large part the sort of core like the main successor to the iron merge type of organizational strategy but what we see too is that there are increasingly there are specializations for different types of alt tech platforms so uh, Signal and Wire are the places where recruitment happens because, you know, Telegram is where they propagandize. They send people to Signal and Wire to talk more specifically about operations. Discord is also a, a big sort of operational focus for, for these types of groups. But then there are additionally some places where um, the propagandization strategy is more like, let's try to get in with the normie Trump supporters, for instance. Those would be like true social and gap. There are significant, although fairly small presences of accelerationists on gab doing this sort of thing. And I tend to think that they have a sympathetic ear with Andrew Torba, their CEO. True social is similar. Getter is similar. Uh, Parlor, to whatever extent, is still is relevant, is similar in that way as well. So... Whereas Iron March was this sort of like flash in the pan, even though it was around for six years or whatever, it's still relatively short lived, but it was incredibly important for bringing everyone together and creating these networks. Now the networks exist. And so what we see is these, these different platforms are increasingly filling specific niches for the needs of extremist communities. And those niches, those niches can change depending on if content moderation uh, changes as well. Uh, Alex, you mentioned a series of tech platforms on which far-right extremists have uh, you know, found purchase recently. You mentioned Discord and Telegram, SignalWire. Uh, but I can't help but notice that in the middle there, you did mention Roblox. <laughs> Firstly, what is Roblox? And secondly, how do accelerationists use it? Roblox is a video game but it is also a social network a social platform um so basically it's one of the biggest games in the world it has millions of players it has a massive multi-billion dollar market cap um incredibly incredibly a popular game and the reason it's so popular is because it's basically like if you take the creation tools of minecraft and you put those on top of an incredibly robust social network uh, platform so people can go into roblox they can cr create all sorts of different very complex like basically video games within a video game and then they can share them with their friends create groups within which they can interact with one another um, they can create clans that can then compete and ally with other clans uh, and and all those types of things so i think like minecraft plus let's say facebook combine those two things together and you get roblox is the best way to put it what I found there is that there have been like there are pretty robust, mature networks of accelerationists with uh, who are operating pretty openly on Roblox. Uh, we're talking about like not just not just a, a person who has like a swastika in their somewhere on their on their avatar or whatever. We're talking about like dyed in the wool accelerationists who know what is going on in accelerationist philosophy. We're talking about people who do everything from create groups called like the covenant sword and the arm of the Lord, all the way up to people who are in various ways, promoting temple of blood literature. Like these are, these are hardcore accelerationists and they've used Roblox to create these um, pretty substantial networks of friends, of group alliances, of group enemies, like uh, oppositional relationships that are used often for 
propagandization purposes. So like a neo-fascist group will say that their enemy is the Jews. Like those sorts of things are very, very common on Roblox. And to whatever, to, to the extent that that is successful, I think is still an open question, but it's pretty clear that they're trying to do some sort of like hybrid of mobilization and identity creation thing on Roblox. Is there a lack of content moderation on Roblox? What, what what can these gaming platforms do about these people being on their platforms? Yeah, and I'll give I'll give um Roblox credit that they are uh, increasingly aware of this. I think the growth of Roblox has sort of outstripped their ability to keep an eye on who is doing what, and it is not a Roblox specific issue as well. Um, Accelerationists are using all different types of games. Uh, Roblox is just the one I know the most about. In large part, it is a content moderation and awareness issue. I think often people who are looking in from the outside forget that facebook twitter google microsoft are basically a decade of ahead of every other company and in content moderation just by virtue of them needing to be and so when we see like nazis popping up in pretty explicit form on other types of platforms it it really is just like you know, Facebook has such a, a huge head start on being able to take it uh, uh, to to get a handle on on those issues. And that's not to say that Facebook doesn't have issues; they obviously do. But they have put in so many more systems in place to take to to get a handle on these on these types of uh, interactions and behaviors. And those those resources just haven't been available to um, smaller or smaller platforms or platforms that aren't sort of built from the ground up to be a social network. So yeah, in in large part, it really is just a content moderation issue. One of the things that I work with or work on in my job the most is helping those other platforms just try to get, you know, try to close the gap with uh, between them and, and those bigger platforms. One of the leaders of the, these groups, the foyer Creek division turned out to be a 13 year old child. And I was interested reading one of your research papers uh you comment on how you know other users in the network didn't realize that this person was a child he seemed you know just as uh intelligent as them what does that say that they couldn't tell the difference between a child and an adult it what it says is that there are a lot of adolescents who are interacting with accelerationist communities it also it also says that you know adolescents are often underestimated there are a lot of 13 to 16 year olds who have read incredibly complicated philosophy, uh, both on the, you know, on the good side, like the people who just engage with it because they're interested in it, but also on the extremist side, like there are people who have spent, by the time they're 13, they have spent years reading really in-depth fascist philosophers and know how to talk to it and how to interact with other people who can talk to it pretty effectively. It's, you know, these these types of people are also the ones making up the dominant user bases of platforms like discord and roblox and uh even 4chan still so i i think the the main thing that his youth says and and the fact that he was underestimated says is that i think ultimately adolescence in these groups is is very very common uh and but even within them they extremists themselves will often under underestimate people of 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 particularly young generations. Alex, outside of perhaps inspiring various atrocities, what do you think are the wider effects of militant accelerationism? Yeah, I think the the reason why I tend to view accelerationism as the most important security threat right now is because I think that in addition to influencing the mass casualty events like the mass shootings, in addition to spinning up groups like animal off division that have a whole bunch of antisocial impacts on the communities that they interact with accelerationists are also 
because of the tactics that they employ, they are also interested in doing things like attempting to spin up divisions between like two civil sort of social movements. One of the best examples of this, for instance, was the role of the Boogaloo movement during the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States in 2020. We saw quite a few of them basically taking no sides beyond just like we want war to happen. It could have been much worse. Uh, there was a, a plot that was foiled in Las Vegas by a group of Boogaloo, Boogaloo movement adherents where they were planning on basically throwing Molotov cocktails at both sides of the protest, the, the BLM protesters and the police, with the goal of, in their eyes, hopefully uh, hopefully causing like a shootout and, and causing a, a sort of degradation into a mass casualty event. I also think that they have a penchant for showing up and and being able to be in opportune locations for causing the most chaos and, and sort of like pushing situations over the edge into more violent scenarios. Um, my team at, uh, at Middlebury and, and some of the folks on the Accelerationism Research Consortium did a really good job of tracking where the explicit skull mask wearing accelerationist types were at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. And what they saw is that those people were often at very specific locations where they could take an active role in encouraging people to break in and, and attack police officers. So I, I tend to think that that sort of possibility of accelerationists being these types of agents of chaos and force multipliers and already, already very tense, potentially dangerous scenarios is the reason why I view them as such an important security threat right now. I don't think that they'll have any success in tearing down the world or destroying civilization, obviously. But I do think that they can, because of their willingness to embrace violence in all of its forms, uh, I, I think that they can be those force multipliers and cause pretty scary situations. Alex, the ARC recently published on the Diagalon movement out of Canada. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and the, the influence that militant accelerationism had on the convoy protests? Yeah, so the Diagon movement was uh, a or is uh, a network of far right extremists up in Canada who are attempting to uh, basically set up an ethno state um, that they call like the Diagon state. It's a it's an ethno separatist movement, but it has influence from a variety of forces that I would describe as more on the accelerationist side of the spectrum than just solely being separatist side. The head of the Diagon movement, who goes by the pseudonym Raging Dissident, is a pretty well-known right-wing troll up in Canada. He is probably comparable to someone like uh, Nick Fuentes in, in terms of like having, or, or maybe Alex Jones, Nick Fuentes hybrid. Um, he has these live streams where he basically just goes on tirades talking about immigrants and LGBTQ people and basically saying everyone's out to get him and, you know, your normal sort of right-wing influencer stuff. But the difference is that he is deeply connected on Telegram, at least, to a variety of pretty openly neo-fascist and accelerationist actors. And he's put together this separatist movement called Diagon Network. And the most important and, and dangerous event that came out of that is that there was actually a, a sub a cell of the Diagon network that was busted, um, stockpiling weapons and what appears to have been plotting some sort of violent attack in, in the guys. It, it was pretty, pretty, it was pretty similar looking actually to some of the Boogaloo movement plots um, from a couple of years ago in the U S but the uh, same idea held here. It was a, a cell of the Diagon network. They stockpiled a bunch of weapons. 
Um, they were plotting some sort of confrontation with, with the police and then ultimately got busted. And that type of thing, that type of plot is very, very indicative of deep influence from accelerationist actors. So Dialogue Network is a little interesting because they don't have, as far as we can tell, there's we have yet to find hard links to some of the other older, you know, uh, predecessor type of groups like the base or Atomoffin division. That's not to say that it doesn't exist. We have some suspicion that they might be connected with the base, but they seem to have pretty much come up sort of separately from the American trends in accelerationism, but were very, very influenced by their leaders' interactions on Telegram with with those types of ideologies. Uh, Alex, if people want to read accelerationist propaganda, there's a whole network of sites providing uh, security briefings, which uh, happily advertise this content on a regular basis. Uh, how, how do you avoid amplification of this content when reporting on it? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a hard one. Um, like we go back and forth even on like naming mass shooters after attacks because we don't want to sensa- sensationalize attackers. We don't want to send people down rabbit holes. What we generally do is that, um, we will, we will never share anything that is, that is like, re- like, that has a sort of um, gateway or a, a, a gatekeeping mechanism to access it. So we'll never send someone down the path of like attempting to join a group where you have to be vetted by the, by the leaders of that kind of thing. Um, we will also generally never send someone down a path where they end up in one of those big public telegram channels. However, what we will do is we will share what we feel as sort of like exemplary types of, content that we feel like are indicative of bigger trends in propaganda or aesthetics or rhetoric so i'll often share like the some of the killdozer memes from boogaloo groups or some of the uh like eco-fascist aesthetics uh in my public speeches because one none of them have sort of direct call outs to specific groups or specific channels where people can go find them but also too i feel like it is vitally important to understand the developments in in sort of broader trends in in uh, accelerationist aesthetics and propaganda, so the the general balancing act I try to I try to uh, strike is asking myself if I share a piece of content, can someone go find the exact place it came from? Uh, usually, I'll try to make sure that that answer is a no. Um, I'll also try to make an, make sure that no specific entity or individual is uh, readily identified by that piece of content. And then third, I'll ask myself: Is the value of sharing this um, important enough that you know? the potential danger of sharing it as outweighed. Alex, speaking of ethics and uh, publishing, there's been some dramatic changes online recently, and uh, Twitter has emerged with a new owner who is committed to uh, free speech in absolute terms. And one of the results of this has been seemingly various Nazis uh, flocking to the platform to use it. Does this concern you, or do you have comment to make about the transformations Twitter has undergone recently? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm deeply concerned by what's going on on Twitter. Um, I simultaneously find it hilarious that the new owner is attempting to do this because he immediately backtracked on reinstating Kanye West, for instance. Uh, but I'm also terrified because Twitter remains a very formidable force in political and social communications worldwide. And the the refrain that I always say is that kicking neo-fascists, neo-Nazis, and accelerationists off of the big platforms is vitally important because, this, in my opinion, the single most important thing we can do is to make sure that their radicalization recruitment services are 
as constrained as possible. So the main value of a platform like Twitter is that they have access to such a huge audience of normal people, of people in the public, uh, and of more moderate people on the on the right of the political spectrum. That is a massive audience of potential recruits, and it's just never going to that 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 value um, that is that is uh, posed by that that pool of recruits is just never going to be matched by the value of um, the more open but nonetheless way smaller uh, all tech platforms. So, because the new owner of Twitter has been uh, loosening some of those content moderation policies and letting people back on. There's this like pretty scary moment that's happening right now where like Twitter is still this massive platform with a ton of people who aren't clued in enough to really know what's going on and to exit if they wanted to. That is combining with this influx of people who had been banned and who feel emboldened to try to go out and pull new recruits into, into more far right spaces. So I don't think that's going to be a permanent thing. I do think that reinstating Nazis ultimately has pretty much it's basically like the death penalty on your platform because normal people in general don't want to experience that type of content. But for the moment, for the next, I'll, I'll put a number on it. I'll say like probably six months, we're in this pretty, pretty uh, uh, risky moment. Well, Alex, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you, you are no longer on Twitter, but they can find you on Mastodon at alexbnewhouse at mastodon.world. And the Accelerationism Research Consortium is at accresearch.org. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Andy, we'll be back next week with our final show for the year. Until then, see you later. See you later.
is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamshade Wines. Just $20 per bottle, or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter.